0: Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter, but if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. In March 2021, a group of church leaders in Scotland legally challenged the Scottish Government in the Court of Session, claiming that the Covid restrictions that had been placed on churches were a breach of their freedom of religion. The judge at that court, Lord Braid, agreed, ruling that the government's regulations, and I quote, constitute a disproportionate interference into people's freedom to manifest their religious beliefs, and that they went further than they were lawfully able to do. It was an important and landmark ruling that went further than Scotland and perhaps made the ruling parties in other parts of the British Isles think twice before imposing more restrictions on the Lord's Church. Before that case we had witnessed the strange sight of government edicts imposed upon churches in the interest of safety. Churches had been ordered to close, to space out their seating areas, to restrict their numbers to stop singing, to meet outdoors, to make their people hide their faces behind masks. Government interference in the affairs of God's kingdom in England, Ireland and Scotland, requiring churches to deliberately disobey the precepts set out in God's word is not entirely unprecedented. In this history podcast we're going to travel back in time to 1662, when the government Expelled from the churches all those ministers who would not conform to their punitive decrees. 1662 became known as the year of the Great Ejectment. If we don't know our history, then we are bound to repeat it and repeat its errors. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. In 1662 a new law was passed, it was called the Middleton Act, and under this law a minister could only serve in a parish if a bishop or a patron, for example a local laird, had nominated him, and all ministers were required to swear allegiance to the crown. In this legislation King Charles II thought that he could remove the remaining dissenting ministers from the parishes, Presbyterians in Scotland. Congregationalists in England, Protestant dissenters who refused to use the Book of Common Prayer. That, he thought, would allow complete implementation of Episcopalianism ruled by bishops and the liturgical rigidity of the prayer book. In fact, nearly 400 ministers left or were forced to leave. One third of Scotland's clergy were excluded from their pulpits to be replaced in most parishes by Episcopalian curates. These outed ministers took to the fields, preaching and conducting services of worship in the open air. These field meetings became known as conventicles. The response from the government was heavy-handed, dispatching squadrons of dragoons to hunt down the illegal worshippers. Preachers and pastors became wanted men. Many were forced to actually take up arms for their own protection. Let's consider an example. One of the preachers expelled at that time was the minister of New Loose, the Reverend Alexander Peden. Forced to leave the pulpit he loved and was called to, Sandy Peden wept openly in the church as he preached his farewell sermon based on Paul's departure from Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Leaving his pulpit for the last time, he banged on its door with his Bible and said three times over, I arrest thee in my master's name, that never none enter thee but such as come in at the door as I did. No minister occupied the pulpit at New Luce until 1693, when the Reverend William Kyle became the minister. A year later, in 1663, a change happened in the government of Scotland. John Middleton, who, during his time as King's Commissioner in Scotland, implemented the Act of Parliament which ousted the Covenanter Ministers from their pulpits, had gone. And he'd been replaced by the Earl of Rothes, an illiterate and vulgar debauchee who was barely able to write. His letters were large and widely separated. His chief advisor was none other than that turncoat from Presbyterianism, Archbishop Sharp of St Andrews. When the Scottish Parliament ended its session in the autumn of 1663, it was replaced by the Privy Council, a body in which Sharp and Rothes held overall control. At that time, though, Sharp was determined to wreak revenge upon the Presbyterians. And he was further enraged by the fact that parishes in the lowlands were refusing to accept Episcopalian curates as their ministers. It seemed as if the congregations, especially in the West, were more willing to allow the church buildings to fall into disrepair and be forsaken, rather than to accept the ministry of an Anglican pastor. So I resolved to crush all this opposition and he travelled to London, where he persuaded the king to reinstate the then obsolete Court of High Commission, a body that had arbitrary powers to try and convict all people who refused to worship in Episcopalian churches. Sharp himself was the president of this court. He sat with nine prelates and thirty-five laymen, the verdicts of the court were final and often reached without any recourse to evidence of any sort. Landowners were fined for allowing conventicles on their land. Field preachers were arrested and banished. Women were flogged and children sold off as slaves. The grip of the king's men on the Presbyterians was increasing. And a phase of persecution that would last for a quarter of a century was rapidly beginning. Enforcing the eviction of the ministers and pursuing the field preachers was the task of the dragoons. These soldiers, under the leadership of Sir James Turner, were sent to dragoon people into the churches, to literally drive people physically at pain of death into churches where Anglican services were being preached by the curates. Those who attended the field meetings or conventicles held by the rebellious Presbyterian ministers would be forced to pay fines. The severity of Turner's dragoons is legendary. He took full advantage of the new regulations and laws passed by the Privy Council to forbid field worship and exacting huge fines, most of which, of course, found their way into the pockets of the dragoons themselves. People were beaten and imprisoned. Put in chains, many were detained for months. A new prison was built on the Bass Rock, just off the east coast close to Edinburgh, to contain the prisoners. There was no legal redress, and the royalist nobility often joined in, using enforcement of the religion laws as a pretext to plunder the lands and homes of the Covenanters, further adding to their own wealth. So the rich got richer, The poor were crushed and oppressed by the state and those who attempted to remain faithful to God and his word were ruthlessly persecuted, persecuted to death in many cases. The Christians were determined to defend themselves against this unfair and unjust government. In 1666, the military build-up on both sides, government and covenanters, was continuing. The oppressive activities of the dragoons caused anger and resentment among the common people. Down in Galloway, in the town of Dalry, a platoon of soldiers had claimed the corn of an old farmer called Greer in lieu of payment of a fine. Greer had tried to escape But the dragoons had caught up with him and had tied his feet and his hands together, intending to sling him on a stick as an animal, then to take him and roast him on a gridiron, a kind of barbecue in modern terms. Some covenanters, including an ousted Laird John McClellan, were at a nearby inn, and seeing the incident as they left the inn where they'd been eating breakfast, they went to the farmer's aid. When they challenged the soldiers as to their actions a huge argument began and the soldiers drew their swords. This in turn prompted one of the Covenanters to discharge a pistol. A corporal called Deans was shot by McClellan and injured and the authorities were enraged. Out of this petty scuffle in a remote village in the Ayrshire Hills sprang an unplanned rebellion. Some 150 Covenanters had gathered near Dumfries, determined to do something to lighten the burden of oppression, and the incident at Dalry would only serve as an excuse for the government to enact vengeance. So they agreed on a bold plan. James Turner, the dragoon commander, had been taken ill and was lying in a house at Dumfries, and the band of Covenanters determined that they would take him prisoner. With almost two hundred men, they entered Dumfries, where Turner only had some seventy men quartered, and of these only around twelve were actually in the town at the time. Turner was taken captive. The band of covenanters left Dumfries and marched to Ayr, and then turned east towards Lanark, determined that they would march to Edinburgh, where, I suppose, they thought with such a famous hostage to bargain with, they would be able to petition the government for relaxation of the laws regulating worship. Along the road the treatment meted out to Turner varied. At first when he was captured he was clothed only in his night clothes and was being led along on a horse with no saddle, just a halter. A number of his captors actually wanted to put him to death but they were overruled by the others. It's said that Turner was actually more annoyed with the Presbyterian habit of saying grace before meals than he was with the poor quality of their food. Some of the ministers among the Covenanters would witness to Turner, would plead with him to turn from his sinful ways. The Reverend John Welch himself prayed with Turner and assured him that they earnestly sought the salvation of his soul. Later Turner would comment that To what they spoke of my conversion, I said, it would be hard to turn a turner. At the Bridge of Dune, General James Wallace joined the march. Wallace was a good man, a professional soldier, who had fought for Parliament in the Civil Wars. And he moulded the rabble that he found into a good functional platoon. He was courteous to turner and even earned the man's admiration for his military abilities at lanark on the 25th of november 1666 the marchers crowded round the toll booth and published a declaration in which they renewed the covenants and deplored the burning of the solemn league and covenant by the government they justified their march by pointing out that episcopacy had been forced upon the people while fines and imprisonments had been levied on Presbyterian worshippers. The military activities of the dragoons and the judgments of the High Commission were all cited as reason enough for their actions. The Covenanters marched on from Lanark towards Edinburgh, still with their hostage, but they were plagued with bad weather along the way, and they arrived at Bathgate having tramped across sodden moors and were unable to find any accommodation. By midnight they were forced to march on, and when morning found them five miles from Edinburgh they were hardly recognisable as the fighting force that Wallace had been training at Lanark. Although militarily the Covenanters had little hope of success against the armies of the King, the authorities did fear an armed insurrection, and they had placed cannon at the gates of the city. By the time the band of covenanters reached Edinburgh, their entrance was barred and their request for an audience with the council was simply refused. So they retreated to Rullian Green. It was Wednesday the 28th of November 1666. Perhaps their intention was simply to camp there, to rest, thinking that perhaps the council would listen to their requests and be reasonable in their response. But the hapless covenanting band were ambushed by around three thousand government troops all of them regular soldiers all armed and all ready for action around 900 covenanters were there and yet they only had 60 muskets between them and they were facing overwhelming odds jock purvis writing in his classic book fair sunshine notes that some of the weaker brethren among the presbyterians on the march to Edinburgh had to be actually tied hand-to-hand with their stronger comrades to enable them to make the journey at all, and facing them at Rullion Green was a well-fed and well-nourished army of professional soldiers. The battle raged fiercely. Twice it actually looked as though the Covenanters might prevail, but the numbers were simply too much for them. They were ill-equipped and they were exhausted and they were quickly overwhelmed. Fifty Covenanters were killed, including two brave Ulster ministers, John Cruikshank and Andrew McCormick, and some seventy or eighty men were taken captive and brought to Edinburgh, where they were hung, drawn and quartered. Those not captured or killed, fled over the hills to freedom. Their captive, Sir James Turner, had been brought to the battlefield along with the Covenanters, And when it was seen that the government forces under DL had won the day, the Covenanters actually set him free. Long before the battle Turner had struck a bargain with his jailers that in the event of a defeat they would go unpunished on the condition that Turner was not mistreated during his time in their captivity. Turner actually kept the bargain and in the hour of victory he went along with his captors to the government soldiers where the two men surrendered. It was all in vain, though. Turner was overruled by the Privy Council in Edinburgh, who had the two men in question executed. Let's pause for a moment in our historical account, and let's turn our thoughts to worship. Those men and women who worshipped God in the fields of Scotland, who were determined to abide by the principles of worship that were set out in God's Word, would have sung metrical psalms at those conventicles one psalm that speaks directly to their own experiences of persecution is psalm 124 the psalmist writes if god the lord had not been on our side let israel say had not the lord been near when foes attacked us filling us with fear and when their wrath against us reached its height alive we had been swallowed in their spite in verse 7, we have escaped, just as a captured bird out of the fowler's net has been set free. The snare is cut, we are at liberty. Our help is in the name of God the Lord, who made the earth and heavens by his word. Psalm 124, and the tune is Old 124th. along with those captured around the time of Rullion Green was the Reverend Hugh McHale, a young minister who had taken a stand against authoritarianism. We're going to briefly consider his life for a moment just to get a little vignette, a character portrait of one of those really determined Christians who would stand up for God and for Christ's covenant and for God's word. Hugh McHale was born in 1640. He was the son of the Reverend Matthew McHale, the minister of the church at Bothwell. He wasn't a well youth, sickly. He went to Edinburgh University where he studied, lodging with his uncle also called Hugh McHale. In 1661, young Hugh applied for a licence to minister which was granted. And at the age of 21, he preached his first public sermon in St Giles Church in Edinburgh. In this maiden sermon he made a thinly veiled reference to the church and state leaders as being a Pharaoh on the throne, a Haman in the state and a Judas in the church, all of whom at various times had persecuted God's church. Well, obviously, that sermon was never going to be well received by the authorities, and McHale had to flee away from Edinburgh and go into exile in Holland, a country that had given safe haven to many Presbyterians and Puritans. It was while he was there that he spent his time preparing for his return to Scotland. He was determined to rejoin the battle for truth and Christian liberty. In 1666, at the age of 25, Hugh McHale rode with the Covenanter Band, in that march to Edinburgh as part of the ill-fated uprising which ended with defeat at Rullian Green. It is said that by this time McHale was so weak and sick that he actually had to be tied onto his horse to prevent him slipping off. At one stage in the journey he fainted and even was presumed to have died. Near Crammond Water, McHale realised that he was not going to be physically fit enough to continue in the march and he turned back making his way towards the south part of Edinburgh to his father's home. But he was stopped by a party of dragoons and arrested for being in possession of a sword and on suspicion of having been among the men of the uprising. Having been arrested and searched, he was taken to Edinburgh and placed in a cell. Now that McHale had been formally charged with being a rebel and with having spoken seditious words at St Giles, he was then brought before Lord Rothfuss, Who had been appointed to interrogate the minister. Rothes was enraged by McKeel's quiet answers and his patient refusal to reveal the names of others. He ordered the executioner to bring out an implement of torture known as the boot. This was a boot-shaped contraption made of cast iron, into which was placed the leg of a prisoner. The tormentor, the torturer, would then use a heavy mallet to drive a wedge of cast iron between the boot and the knee of the unfortunate victim. It was kneecapping in a primitive form. It broke the bones and tore the flesh of the leg. It produced excruciating agony and it left the victim unable to stand. In McKeel's case, the wedge was driven in eleven times before Rothis finally gave up questioning him and returned him now in dreadful agony to the jail. All throughout the torture, McHale continued to remain silent about his fellow Covenanters. When asked by Rothas why he did not just give the required information, McHale said, I protest solemnly in the sight of God. I can say no more, though all the joints in my body were in such great anguish as my knee. Back in his cell, McHale suffered a terrible inflammatory fever, induced by his pain. But he remained faithful to God and prayed constantly and interceded for those outside who were facing the gallows for the sake of Christ and his gospel. On the 18th of December a second trial was held and this time McHale confirmed that he had been with the Covenanters on the march from Er to Edinburgh and that further he had been in possession of a sword. On these grounds he was sentenced to death at the Mercat Cross. It is said that At the sentence, McHale was filled with joy and, being returned to his cell, cried out to the onlookers to trust in God. A friend inquired after his shattered knee and McHale replied with a smile, The fear of my neck has made me forget my leg. To another he remarked that he was less in fear of dying than of preaching a sermon. The execution took place four days after the sentence. Despite last minute pleas from several high ranking members of the nobility, a personal plea from his own cousin to Archbishop Sharp, who said that he could do nothing. The cousin, Dr. Matthew McHale replied, you mean you will do nothing? But Sharp remembered the words spoken in St. Giles. He was determined to have his revenge. At the gallows, McHale read out his testimony of conversion to Christ. He declared his continuing love for his saviour. His final speech was recorded in a volume entitled Napthali, written by one James Stewart and published in 1667, just a year after McHale's death. It has been said that McHale's final testimony is among the finest examples of personal faith and courage ever witnessed. The hangman swung open the trapdoor, and Hugh McHale's body writhed and twisted on the rope, and his cousin Matthew rushed forward, grabbed his legs and held them together, pulling down on them to make death come all the swifter. After the execution, McHale's remains were removed from the gallows, taken to the Magdalen Chapel, where they were dressed for burial. The authorities didn't often allow this, But Matthew McHale seems to have exercised considerable influence in Edinburgh. Hugh McHale was later buried in the criminal's burying ground in Greyfire's Kirkyard, in the plot where the martyr's memorial monument now stands. Dr Matthew McHale had arranged with the hangman to receive Hugh's black coat following the execution, a coat that he wore continually for many, many years as a reminder of his dear godly cousin, and as a symbol of his own sad morning. The death of Hugh McHale brought to the government a realisation that the martyrdoms were not deterring further so-called fanatics from taking up the covenanting cause, so they tried a new tactic. In 1669 the act of indulgence was passed, permitting ministers to return to their parishes provided that they did not attempt to stir up any more covenanting activity. Ministers who accepted these terms became known as indulged Presbyterians. That had the effect of splitting the covenanting movement. Many ministers accepted the government's terms, thinking that they had won some kind of a victory, while others would consider no compromise and remained out in the fields condemning the indulged clergy as traitors, who were totally beyond the pale. Now the movement is split, and it's on its knees. It has to be said that many of the ministers who accepted the indulgence did so for reasons that were pure and honest, if somewhat inconsistent, with their earlier professions. Many of these men were not traitors or supporters of the government. They were simple godly ministers who saw the dangers of leaving their flocks without a shepherd and thus leaving them at the mercy of the curates and without any gospel preaching. To many ministers this was a worse crime, and forsaking the principles of Presbyterianism. It also has to be said that even when a man accepted the indulgence, he was not free from government interference and persecution. Archibald Riddle was one such indulged Presbyterian, whose ministry was under constant scrutiny by the government. Although the minister had sworn to accept the king's rule, he was by nature a Presbyterian, and thus his sermons were monitored for sedition, His every action was recorded. In 1680, Riddle was arrested and charged with preaching in the fields, an activity he had not been involved in since the Battle of Bothwell Bridge. His indictment read that he had preached in his own house, without the permission of a curate, contrary to the law. He was found guilty and imprisoned on the Bass Rock, and later deported to America. The government decided that the situation was now under control. And that the remaining dissident covenanters could be successfully culled. On the 13th of August 1670 an act of parliament the act against conventicles passed in the Scottish Parliament tightened yet again the prohibition on opener preaching. Now those attending such meetings could be fined, imprisoned or deported ministers found organising any such meeting could be executed. If the conventicle were held in a house or in someone's property then that person would be fined. If it were held in a town or a borough, then the local magistrates would be fined. Yet a small group of dedicated men and women remained. Among them were still some people who had signed the National Covenant, men like John Blackadder and Donald Cargill. The first conventicle to be attended by armed Covenanters seems to have been held at Dunfermline on the 18th of June 1670. John Blackadder officiated with other ministers. And when a platoon of soldiers discovered the meeting, the men who were carrying arms repulsed them. The soldiers were wise enough to stand off from the meeting and observe those who were in attendance. So that tactic is not just a tactic of modern policing. And many of those were then later on arrested and fined, and some were even deported. Many conventicles, though went uninterrupted and undisturbed. A large conventicle is recorded in 1679 at Kirkcubryshire. 6,000 covenanters gathered to hear John Blackadder and others preaching. On this occasion, communion was offered to the attendees and some 3,000 people took the sacrament. Rows of rocks, known as the communion stones, were set up at the conventicle site and the congregation came to these rocks in their turn to receive communion, while at the same time others listened to various preachers throughout the fields. I'm told these communion stones are actually still on the site of the conventicle at Skake Hill near Kukubri. It was a well-planned event, yet despite the thoroughness of the organisers, it was infiltrated by non-adherents, who eventually reported back to their masters. Attempts were then made to break up the conventicles, but the covenanters had posted sentries and were able to disperse out into the hills only to reconvene the next day at a spot three or four miles from the communion stones. In 1677-78 to 78, the law was tightened yet again. Landowners were made liable under the law to ensure that their tenants did not involve themselves in covenanting activities or organised meetings in their fields, and rumours persisted of armed rebellion. The government, acting in a panicky response in December 1677, brought in troops from the Highlands to root out the Covenanters, some 8,000 Highlanders brought from Stirling down to Ayrshire. These soldiers became known as the Highland Host, and their excesses and their abuses of the local people are very well documented. It was the government's policy to actually billet these Highlanders in the private homes of anyone who refused to attend Anglican worship. Once billeted in a house, the soldiers would eat the poor people out of house and home. They would destroy and loot everything they could find. They would inflict pain and rape and death in the process. One account exists of how they murdered a pregnant woman by thrusting a knife into her stomach and of the death of a minister in Kilmarnock, following a beating by the Highlanders. In most areas, the Highlanders were withdrawn by February 1678, although in Annonshire they remained and the people suffered under them until 1685. The Scottish Covenanters endured terrible persecution under the government between 1662 and 1689, Legislation forced them out of their churches into the fields and compelled them to defend themselves against extreme physical force and even to take up arms. They were forced out of their homes and farms, tortured and murdered, and their dead bodies desecrated and displayed publicly as a warning to others. The underlying reason for this was the obsession, the mania of successive kings, To have complete authoritarian control over their population. The local ministers in the parish churches had a great deal of influence over their flocks. They taught them and they preached to them. They were listened to by the ordinary people. To control the people, the government required ministers who would preach what the government wanted the people to hear and that required a chain of control over the churches and only episcopacy, a hierarchical system, of compliant curates, priests, bishops and archbishops, all answerable up the chain of command to the king himself as the supposed earthly head of the church, only in that way could the government's messages filter down to the people and reports of possible insurrection or disobedience could filter upwards so that political dissent would be crushed before it could spread. But Christ is the only head of his church. And Presbyterianism in Scotland and in England, Puritanism and Congregationalism, where Christ alone rules, where the king's politics and propaganda have no place, those systems were a threat to the king's authoritarian system of command and in the mind of the king and the governing classes, they had to be ruthlessly controlled and suppressed, even if that meant vicious and cruel torture. How would we fare? Living under the diktats of an authoritarian regime, one that wants to control every aspect of our lives, even to tell Christians how and when to worship, would we say no? Would we resist the encroachments of a pagan, anti-Christian, government cabal, at whatever cost that may bring us? Or would we simply bend the knee to tyranny, leave aside our faith and our doctrines and our principles to save our own necks and preserve our earthly comforts? We began this podcast with a reading from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3 verse 16 to verse 18 talks about the three Hebrew lads, Shadrach Meshach and Abednego who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol and they were brought before that tyrannical authoritarian king and under pain of death they were ordered to explain their actions. We read their response. They said we are not afraid to answer you. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us and even if he doesn't deliver us we're still not going to give in. And even if he doesn't deliver us, verse 18, But if not be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship thy golden image, which thou hast set up. The king ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than normal, and for the three boys to be cast into the flames. And even then the Lord was with them, and he preserved them for his glory the king looking into the inferno said i see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they have no hurt and the form of the fourth is like the son of god our protestant forefathers worshipping in the fields of scotland trusted that same god endured that same persecution and stood firm for our Lord Jesus Christ. May God give us grace and courage to be like them in times of authoritarianism.